0: You're listening to Liberty Buzzard with Dustin Hammett and Thomas Umstead, Jr.
1: Good morning, everybody. I'm Dustin Hammett.
0: I'm Thomas Umstead, Jr.
1: Today we're going to talk about, well, the first thing we're going to talk about is this new little thing I saw on Twitter yesterday uh, from the Texas Tribune about the Indy Party. Uh, I think that's Indie for Independent Party in the state of Texas, trying to gather enough signatures to get on the senatorial ballot uh, for this upcoming election season. And I read the article, Thomas, and I got to tell you, I was absolutely fascinated. And I spent a majority of this morning, this morning, going through all the materials. And um, they do have somewhat of a platform, and we'll go over that. But their biggest platform, like most independent parties out there, is just the fact that we're not these other guys. So it's we're just we're, we're the uncola, you know, that's yeah. that's their that's their whole platform.
0: I don't feel like that's enough of a platform. I, so I am a political operative, or at least I used to be. I went to the training that they give to Republican political operatives who are trying to get people elected. And there's a lot of like uh, political science fundamentals that apply regardless of what the issues are. And one of the truisms of politics is that you can't beat somebody with nobody. So if you're running a nobody against a somebody, it doesn't matter how bad and evil the somebody is, your nobody is always going to lose. And running and saying, I am not the somebody that you dislike, never works (laughs) because uh, people want to vote for something. They don't want to vote against something.
1: Sure. And I completely agree with you. Um, And uh, Jonathan Jenkins, that's the name of the candidate. Uh, he's uh, uh, quoted in the Texas Tribune as being a successful tech entrepreneur and fluent Mandarin speaker uh, from ULIS, Texas. And he's it's, uh, working Mandarin. right now. It's Mandarin, Dustin. Oh, it's... sorry. Sorry. <laughs> My bad. Uh, anyway, he's working on gathering the 47,000 or so signatures he needs to qualify to get on the ballot. So I went and I, I'll tell you. I watched his campaign videos and the production value is absolutely outstanding. I loved his campaign videos. Of course, this is all going to be grassroots type stuff. I doubt you'll, you'll see it uh, on the regular cable TV, but, uh, I'm going to retweet his video just because I thought the production value was so fantastic and uh, it actually left me wanting more. So it did its job. So I went to his website and he actually does have some platforms here. Uh, Let's be fair to the man. Yeah, what is he
0: believing? Talk about the Tribune uh, story, and it didn't talk about a single issue. (laughs) Yeah,
1: that's exactly right. It doesn't talk about issues, right? So, on the Jenkins First Senate website, let's talk about his issues. So, his first issue is taxation with no accountability, taxation (laughs) without representation, right? So, uh, apparently, his first issue says uh, that. he wants an itemized receipt from the government that tells us how we spend our money. So that's his first issue. And on his website, he's got uh, you can you can log into his website and apparently suggest new issues and vote up or down the issues that he's got uh, got on the on the bill here. His number two issue is election reform, and this course is going to talk about the two major political parties and how they have a, a monopoly on the system and how it goes to solely enforce their own power. Yada yada. Absolutely true though. Uh so that's his second issue. So I guess he wants to create systemic change to uh to defeat the two party system, which I think has been the uh the beating drum of the indie party, every indie party uh since the beginning of uh the beginning of the United States of America.
0: And this is the only way to do it, by the way, because right now we have what's called first past the post, which means whoever has the most votes wins, which inevitably leads to a two-party system. Because if you have A group, let's say, that's 60% and they have run two candidates and they each get 30%. The faction that they most disagree with, the 40% faction, will win. And in order to avoid that, they'll merge the two thirty percent factions. And so you always have a, a combining. And like you can game this out in game theory. You can simulate it on computers and you can look at it in history every single time. First pass the post always creates a two-party system. If you want something different, you need a different kind of voting. And the one that I like the best is where you rank your candidates. And so you have like a ultimate number of you can vote for every candidate if you wanted to. So I like John the best and I like Susan second best. And I like, you know, uh, Freda third best and this other guy, I'm not voting for him at all. And so how it works is your vote goes for your number one pick and it's like an instant uh, runoff. And if he doesn't get selected, then it goes to your number two pick. And then so on down. And it does that for everybody. It's a sort of voting system that was harder to do with paper. It would take forever. But now with computers, you can do it instantly. And it's uh, much more even. Because, you know, let's say there's a primary. Like uh, when there was a pre- presidential primary, I really liked some of the candidates. It, you know, it was hard to pick one. I liked them most. I, th- I voted for Rand Paul. Actually, no, I ended up voting for Ted Cruz. I'd have loved, though, to give my number one vote for Rand Paul. But at the time, he'd already dropped out of the race. And I didn't want to throw my vote away on Rand. But I could have, under the system, I could have put Rand Paul number one and Ted Cruz number two. And then so on down the list. And, you know, um, the people that I really didn't want to vote for, I wouldn't have given them any votes. (laughs) There's no scenario where I'm voting for this guy, even as a last pick. Uh, I really think that that, I don't know if that's what uh, Jenkins is proposing. But I really think that that kind of uh, system is the only way to get away from a two-party system. And it allows you to have somebody who better reflects you instead of having to always vote for the lesser two evils.
1: Are there any systems out there in the nation or external to our nation right now that actually practice that?
0: Um, Not in the United States. Um, There may be some other countries that practice that. Um, CGP Grey's got some good videos on how it works. Uh, What's wonderful, though, is that you don't have to pass a federal law to change your voting system. The states all decide how voting works within that state. And uh, so all we would need to do to do it is change Texas law uh, to allow for this kind of voting. The problem is, is that you would require it would require Democrats and Republicans to vote to break up the duopoly that Democrats and Republicans have. And they have no incentive to do that. So it's that. And I think that's why we haven't seen it anywhere in the state, because no one wants to vote away their own power.
1: Uh, That's exactly the problem. (laughs) It's the same thing with term limits. Right. I think every American out there, whether you're left or right, can agree, hey, we do impose term limits. But the people who are going to impose term limits on themselves are probably not going to impose term limits on oh, themselves. Oh,
0: no. There are people who are very passionately against term limits. I think it's anti-democratic. They're like, no, let the people decide. If the people are unhappy with their elected representative, they can vote that guy or that girl out. Don't don't have the state come in and tell people that they can't vote for the person they want to vote for. That's undemocratic. That's that's the argument. And I know people who are passionate uh, against term limits.
1: Thomas, I don't know any of those people. They're not in my circle. Uh, I think I'd <laughs> like to talk to them. But I don't think in my 37 you years You've got to expand your horizons,
0: uh, Justin. There's a broad I've world of people with different ideas.
1: <laughs> I've never met anybody who has just said term limits, term limits are a bad idea. So I guess maybe I'm living in a bubble. I don't know. But uh, anyway, to continue on with these platforms, we'll wrap them up here. So uh, embracing innovation and technology in the Senate. So I guess he thinks the Senate is full of a bunch of old guys uh, who have no term limits. And, uh, and that, I, I will say that is true. Technology.
0: Regardless of where you are on the policy, the fact that the Senate is full of a bunch of old people who don't understand technology was made painfully clear when Zuckerberg went to testify before the Senate. They were wow. asking questions like, if you don't charge your users, how do you make money? And I'm like,
1: it was, yeah. How that's are you elected?
0: <laughs> it's like, did you not have any time to do any research going into this? It, it, which is true, actually. the uh, by the way, our elected officials spend about four to five hours every day on the phone with donors uh, and not actually doing their job, like researching bills and talking with other senators. It's a huge part of their job, both on the right and on the left. And it it's part of why these guys walked in not knowing anything about Facebook, because they'd spent all day talking with donors and keeping them happy so that they would donate because of how our campaign finance laws are, you have to get lots of kind of medium-sized donations, which means you have to be on the phone all the time. And they have these like phone banks where senators and congressmen just pick up the phone and they're like some Indian phone banking company and they're run by both parties. So you go to the Republican phone bank and you dial for dollars. And and that's a big, big part of being an elected official. And it's miserable. Uh, And they don't like doing it. And I don't like the idea that my congressman is spending four hours every day on the phone with donors rather than doing his job. Well,
1: I'm going to I'm going to plug a YouTube video here that I really enjoyed. It was a Drain the Swamp, uh, uh the YouTube video about the certain congressmen out there who are trying to buck the system and how the the parties uh they charge uh for certain positions like uh chairmanships and spots on committees. Uh they charge for those spots. So the people who can raise the most money for the party, those are the people who are going to get those seats. I found it absolutely fascinating. Um yeah. But uh, to go back to your point, as far as the people, the elected officials, the stodgy old timers up there being completely out of touch, uh, all I can see during that uh, whole Zuckerberg uh, fiasco was a bunch of 20 something staffers face-palming every time their elected official opened their mouth. <laughs>
0: I will say, though, Cruz is actually one of the most tech-savvy senators. Uh, Cruz and Rand Paul are on the younger side, and they surround themselves with smart people. Cruz was very cutting edge with his social media campaign. In fact, Cruz, I believe, was working with Cambridge Analytica, which is why I didn't ask any questions about that. (laughs) because He would have indicted himself. Um, So that's what's fun, is that Jenkins is running against Cruz, who's very tech-savvy. And I think the Democrat is also pretty tech-savvy. He also seems, seems young. And so he's like, we need to get on all these old timers by voting out one of the youngest members of the Senate. It's like, why don't you run against somebody who's older? Run against our other senator. Anyway, what's the next plank on the uh,
1: platform? So we got uh, three more here. We got uh, cost of health care. So, of course, health care is everybody's issue. Right, left to right. Nobody likes it. Uh, So I don't know how to solve that problem. Good luck. Oh, I do. uh, I do. Oh, oh, Thomas. There's there's actually
0: a really simple... Uh, solution is just one that no one's going to like. And that is get that's rid of, that's exactly the
1: problem, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. Get rid of 100% of the regulations on healthcare for a year and then start re-adding regulations only to fix the things that are actually broken. Cause part of the reason why our healthcare is so expensive is because it's so heavily regulated. It's not actually a free market. Some of those regulations are needed. Some of them are not. It's all motivated by fear or greed, both of which are bad motivations for making policy. And if we just wipe it clean and deregulate healthcare, like what we did with the airline industry or with the banks... Uh, Back in the last decade, uh, last century, we'll see the same sort of results that we saw with the airline industry and with the banks. The cost of flying dropped precipitously after we deregulated it. The cost of banking dropped precipitously after we deregulated it. The same thing can happen with healthcare. And sure, we may, after a year, decide that it is a good idea to license doctors uh, and start issuing doctors' licenses again. But I think that's the solution. And I, I realize that that's harsh, but we have to just reformat the hard drive and reinstall. The operating system from scratch <laughs> there's no patching it at this point
1: uh, i hear what you're saying there uh, i can't say right now that i am a fan of just allowing any old joe to uh, start practicing medicine uh you know you definitely have that caveat enter out there and if somebody has a medical degree on their wall one should be able to trust that state licensing does it work uh does it keep people accountable uh, having had several state licenses in the past, I will say that there is a lot of incentive to keep said license. Uh, is it a barrier to the market? Does it make it more expensive? Absolutely, it does. Yes, it does. So, yes, you're you're correct in that point. However, uh, as a as a student of history, I can tell you, back in the the good old days of uh, of Texas in the West, there was a gentleman named, by the name of Rip Ford. Uh, he was alternatively a surgeon, a lawyer a dentist and a newspaper man, depending on what he felt like doing that day. So, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Rip Ford was quite a character. Do I want to go back to the days where, uh, you know, you could just hang a shingle on your wall and anybody could walk in there and say, hey, you know, take this bullet out of my leg. Uh, nah. that's I don't know. I don't know if I can stomach that. So as far as no political will, a, you know, you're talking about political will uh the the healthcare industry is not only extremely regulated like you said but it's also extremely powerful uh and you went just like we were talking before those congressmen dialing for dollars that healthcare industry has a lot of congressmen in their pockets right now and so that's i mean we can talk about uh we can talk about the ideal and we can talk about realistic and i just don't think it's realistic that's ever going to happen so the cost of healthcare eh, my prediction is it's going to keep increasing in cost
0: yeah, it's nice to say for Jenkins to say, I want to reduce the cost of health care. Everyone's running on that platform. The Democrats have a plan. The Republicans have a plan. And Jenkins have, has a plan. His paragraph on his website is not enough for me to judge whether his plan is any good. <laughs> so, I, I, admirable goal. Sure. I want to reduce the cost of health care just as much as the next guy. But how are you actually going to do that?
1: Yeah. All right. And, what's and the next his, one? Uh, his, his next one is national debt. By 2023, this is off his website, by 2023, we will spend more money paying the interest obligations on our national debt than the entire yearly budget we spend on the military. Anyone who has a credit card knows, uh, here we go, anyone who has a credit card knows that if you make the minimum payment, blah, 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 blah. So he's going after the national debt. He's talking to the he's So I guess he's a populist at heart. He's talking to uh, the populist and saying, hey, we're basically a credit card, of course, Anybody who studied economics knows that there is a vast amount of difference between national debt and credit card. I think we talked about that a couple episodes ago.
0: Yeah, I I feel a little bad for him because he still thinks national debt is an issue that people care about. And Trump has proved that Republicans don't care about the national debt. <laughs> Trump is increasing spending and reducing taxes, increasing the deficit, and no one cares <laughs> because people want bread and circuses. And Republicans want bread and circuses too. They just want different kinds of bread and different kinds of circuses. They want their bread in the form of tax cuts and they want their circuses in the, kind, in the form of military spending. And as long as you do both of those things, they don't really care about the national debt because the numbers are so big, people can't imagine them. And having one unimaginable number and another unimaginable number, it's still an unimaginable number. And so there's no movement on the national debt. When you actually say, yeah, let's cut the military and let's cut Social Security in order to balance the budget, people are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, cut the other people's stuff. Don't cut those things. It's like. That's the biggest piece. And if you've ever been on a budget, where do you save the money? You tend to save the money on the biggest wedges. In military and social security, that's over 50% with just those two pieces. You're not going to be able to do much with the budget if you're not willing to look at those two pieces. And those are the two pieces that are untouchable. Oh, and also Medicare and Medicaid. Once you add those in, I think we're closer to like 60, 70% of the budget. And those are the pieces no one wants to touch. Everyone wants to touch is discretionary funds. And it sounds like big money. It's like, oh, we spent millions of dollars on some bridge to nowhere. It's like, yeah, we spent millions of dollars. But there's a big difference between millions, billions, and trillions. (laughs) And people can't imagine that difference. And so they're like, oh, yeah, we'll cut these little pieces here and there when they really need to make major cuts. And like, maybe we shouldn't build that aircraft carrier. Maybe we shouldn't have troops in Germany anymore.
1: Yeah, I mean, national debt, it's always a great talking point. Uh, is there ever any, an, ever going to be political will do anything about it? Yeah, uh, if it ever actually some way economically comes to bite us. Catastrophe is about the only way to get anything done in a Republican system, which on one hand is kind of a good thing because the Republican system is designed to be incompetent. But when uh, we've quagmired ourselves so badly, uh, the, 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 the other side of that coin is that uh, – It's completely ineffective and we can't do anything. So yeah. National debt. Great talking point. Is anything going to happen? Probably not. And the last uh, platform he's got on here is student loans. The topic du jour. Student loans out of cost, the out of control cost of higher ed is calling into question whether it's even worth attending college. I don't disagree there. We can't continue to saddle students with insurmountable debt that they have no realistic chance to pay back with stagnant wages. How do we address the millions of young Americans who already have student loan debt that they can't repay? So what I've noticed on these platforms here, Thomas, is that uh, I've, he's brought up a lot of issues. I don't see any solutions.
0: <laughs> yeah, which is too bad because I have a solution to this as well. I feel like student loans are a very easy thing to fix. Uh, and this one's actually not that painful. Uh, it's just going to hurt some feelings in academia, but those people uh, should be able to get over it. Uh, and all you need to do is make two changes. One, allow the people giving loans for student loans to discriminate based off of major. Because right now, if you're a bank or a lending institution, you're not allowed to give a different loan to somebody who's getting an art history me- major or a gender studies degree as opposed to somebody who's getting, say, a software engineering degree. Even though Thomas, two- what? Did you just say the evil D word? Discriminate. Discriminate? I'm not talking oh. about racial discrimination or gender discrimination or orientation. I'm talking about discrimination based off of things that are measurably different. Your art appreciation major is measurably and demonstratively less valuable than a software engineering major, regardless of what university you go to. And Thomas, if,
1: I am absolutely aghast that you would bring <laughs> such truth into this conversation. I hey, am these shot. Are the Liberty
0: Buzzards. If it's rotten and stinking but true, we're I still going to talk
1: about it. <laughs> I can't believe that you would bring truth and sense into this conversation. Anyway, continue. So, anyway, a
0: student who wants to get a $100,000 loan for a history degree or an art appreciation degree or – an art history degree needs to be able to make a case to the lending institution that they are worth getting that loan and they'll be able to repay it back, which is going to be a harder case to make. And what the result is, is that they may not be able to get a loan for that degree and they'll have to get a better, more useful degree for society, which will benefit the whole country because money will follow the degrees that are more useful. And useful is defined as what the market is willing to pay for. Pricing Prices are a very incredible way of measuring and communicating value uh, to those around you. The more value... You you provide to those around you, the more they pay you back in general. Uh, And then the other thing. So what you do that first. And then the second thing you do is you allow student loans to be resolvable in bankruptcy. Because right now, if you get a student loan, there's no way to get rid of that student loan. If you go bankrupt, that loan stays with you. And it's creating debt peons. Uh, which is how we created peasants back in the day, right? Everyone was free. How do you create a peasant? You give them some huge debt they can't pay off. You have that debt not be absolvable in bankruptcy. You don't have bankruptcy. And then, thankfully, we don't have this. You have that debt pass from generation to generation. So you're born to a peasant and you inherit your peasant father's debt. And the only way to escape that is to... Uh, either run away to the new world or burn down the manor of your lord uh, where all the records are. So in a lot of the revolutions of the peasants uprising, uh, they would go in and burn down the castle or the mansion of the feudal lord. Not because they hated the lord, but they wanted to destroy those debt records because it was the only way for them to get free. And what we need is if you go bankrupt and those debts can be absolved, then suddenly the banks have an incentive to make sure that these are good debts, right? If you're gonna borrow money for a house, the debt does a, or the bank does a lot of due diligence to make sure that the house is worth what you're paying for it. It's like, well, you know, you think this house is worth $150,000, it's really only worth $100,000, we're not gonna give you a loan. Or, and they do a lot of due diligence to make sure that you can pay off your loans. Like, wow, you want this $500,000 loan for your house, you're only making $50,000 a year, uh, you're not going to be able to make the payments. We're not going to authorize you for a loan that's that big. And they do that for their own protection because they don't want you to go bankrupt and be stuck with this loan that they lose a lot of money on. They have no incentive to do due diligence on a education loan because there's no bankruptcy. You could be paying that off as a 50-year-old, 60-year-old with this worthless degree that you spent $100,000 on. It ballooned into $500,000 because you never made your payments or you know interest and inflation and penalties and whatnot. And you You live your entire life with this peonage, this debt burden that you never are able to escape from. And
1: you're never able to become a part of the middle class. Art history is a completely valid degree. And I'm perfectly happy to spend $100,000 on an art history degree because look at the social utility there. I, no, <laughs> no. I made you speechless. <laughs> it's like
0: I realize that you think that it's a it's valuable. Uh, you, the fictional person with an art history degree, and I realize that maybe you're not smart enough to get a better degree. And I'm sorry, but you shouldn't be getting debt for that. If you want to spend your own money, because remember, college used to be the thing that wealthy people sent their children for. And if you are a son of an aristocrat and you want to study art history and get C's and drink beer. Fine. Because you you have somebody paying for that, and you have you know unlimited funds when you graduate from college. But now people are treating college like trade school, where they need to work for a living. They don't aren't inheriting wealth, and they're hoping that college is going to prepare them. And there's this myth that any college degree is good, and that is just unfortunately wrong. Some college degrees are incredibly useful. You get a nursing degree, man, that's helpful. The, by the way, the rule of thumb is if it ends in ing, it's probably a helpful degree. <laughs> um but no, if it, i never
1: thought of that yeah and that's it, actually
0: really smart yeah and if it ends in the word studies it's not a helpful degree <laughs> so as a general
1: like well, i can't say i disagree with you on any of those points you know i'm a big fan of uh, the micro foundation micro works i'm gonna go ahead and plug him even though he's not giving me any money uh just because i think you know i think he's right i think uh i think as a society, we've latched on a little bit too much to the idea that a degree is absolutely going to get you ahead in life. I think there's millions of – maybe not millions. I think there's a lot of people out there who have learned that the hard way. So I'm going to I'm gonna wrap this up. I just want to have a, a little quick discussion. So let's say that Mr. Jenkins here gets the 40,000 necessary signatures. What's your opinion, Thomas, on how this affects the elections in November? Do you think I, he's even a contender? So
0: we always have independents running. Uh, and I don't I don't think he'll be a contender. I don't think he has any chance of winning. The block of people who blindly vote Republican and blindly vote Democrat in Texas is huge, and uh, that's insurmountable at this point, I believe. He might, though, be able to play a spoiler, and there's a lot of power in playing the spoiler, and the perfect example of this is the 2000 election between Al Gore and George W. Bush. The amount that Al Gore lost by... Was far exceeded by the amount that um, the Green Party was able to get. If Al oh, Gore yeah. hadn't have alienated his environmental base, he would have won the presidency. And the Democrats realized that the they had ali- uh, Clinton had alienated the environmentalists to the point that they were willing to vote for somebody else. They're willing to go to the effort to vote in the polls. They weren't staying home. Because that's getting somebody who, to stay home. They they don't count. But if somebody's willing to go to the polls and willing to vote for a third party, they count. There's an actual number of how many people were there. And Al Gore lost the election by five hundred thousand votes. Let's say, and he's looking and, and he's looking and he lost the election in Florida by like five hundred votes, right? And he's looking at the million votes that the Green Party got in Florida, and he's like, "Crap, what have I done?" <laughs> And so what does he do? He goes on an apology tour. And now when you think of Al Gore, you think of this environmental champion. This is a guy who didn't become president because he had alienated the environmentalists. And the Democrat Party has repented. And they now regardless of the economic cost, they are pulling the environmental line. Even if it means alienating the labor unions and all of the factions that they've alienated now by going to the environmentalists that Trump has gathered into his coalition, they have learned their lesson because the Green Party was willing to play the spoiler. And their issues are now the top button issues for the Democratic Party when they weren't in the 90s. And that is the power of playing the spoiler. And so Jenkins could do that. The problem is he's not really running on any issues that he could spoil. None of these are... like he's not really proposing solutions here he's mostly running on hey i'm an op- uh, i'm a solution to a problem that most texans don't feel is a problem most texans don't wake up and be like man the problem in texas is that there's only two parties and if we had a third party that would fix it i don't think that that's a problem that most people feel deep in their bones uh, not like other issues like immigration and environmental issues and diversity and abortion and like the things that really get people excited <laughs> so
1: you know i think i don't know i think he could be an issue if he plays his cards well if he if he does a good grassroots campaign um at in this day and age where everybody's so polar i think he might play i think he might i, I think he might strum a chord with a lot of those centrists out there so those guys who are sick of uh the, the the right and sick of the left and they're just in the middle and they just want to do something different so you know his his I think we've identified that his main platform is hey, I'm not these guys. And I think that <laughs> I think that resonates with a lot more people than 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 people realize. I mean, look at Trump. I think mean, he, he he went on, hey, I'm not I'm not these guys, right? I'm not your traditional uh I'm not your traditional politician. People love that about him. His his MAGA crowd, his his Trump base just loves the fact that he's not a traditional politician and will go out there and do things differently. So if if Trump has proved one thing, it's the fact that people are sick of the traditional politicians. And if you can effectively exploit that, you can make a splash. So I don't know. I'm. If he can get the 47,000 signatures that he needs and if he can actually put a good showing out there, he he might – if he can actually get invited to some debates or something, he he might do well. It's going to be interesting to watch. I'm going to keep my eye on him.
0: Yeah, and I'd like to follow this. And it sounds like he's right now just surveying people and asking uh, his backers that he has already what positions he should have which I will say is an interesting approach. So this issues page is full of questions and surveys and begging you what what issues should I have, which there used to be a time when we were like, I want a principled candidate. And those, those days are gone. People don't actually want a principled candidate. They want a candidate that uh, tells them what they want to hear and set, checks the right boxes, right? And <laughs> you can look at who's leading right now to see that. Uh, You know, Trump Trump is not principled. He's willing to change on any of his positions at any time. And that's more or less OK with his base. They're like, yeah, that's fine. He's welcome to evolve. You know, just 10 years before, uh, candidates were crucified over flip flopping. And that's huh, yeah, <laughs> that, Carrie, like, right? yeah, like, the flip flopper, <laughs> flip flopper. <laughs> that was a terrible, evil thing. I think that the uh, voting base has changed, and people are okay with flip flopping. And this is actually an innovative approach of like, vote for my issues. Do you want me to be pro life? Well, if enough pro life people support me, I'll be pro life. And it's like, well, huh, that that's not how I would run, uh, but it might work for him. So, I, yeah, I want to c- continue following the Jenkins for Senate. Uh, race and uh, see see what he's able to pull together. I like the idea of options, and uh, you know he's putting up a lot of his money. He's running his campaign as a for profit business, which is interesting.
1: I think that's one of the most interesting things about this. Instead of having a Republican Party or Green Party or whatever party that's a non profit, the Indie Party is coming right out there and saying, "Hey, we're a for profit corporation." Um, the first thing that came up in my head, and you're going to know a lot, know a lot more about this than I did was when do we start having corporations run for office? When does Ted Cruz incorporated start running for office? Uh, you know, we have citizens United, the the Supreme court said that, uh, a corporation is an individual and can contribute, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When do we start having Facebook, run for the Senate.
0: Well, in a sense, we've already had that for a long time. So in Texas, there are several big, powerful corporations that run the candidates and they're called consultancies. So you have um, somebody like Luke Macias, who's you know, a big corporation, just bringing in tons of money and has lots of employees and is for profit. And he runs the campaigns for Republicans trying to get elected. And there's, you know, let's say two dozen companies like that. So, uh, you know, I would say probably 12 to 15 companies on the right and the balance on the left. And these companies, they have, you know, printers that they work with and they get kickbacks from the printers and advertising companies. And it's already a for-profit business. The only thing that Jenkins is doing that's innovative is putting a corporation at the top so to speak, <laughs> so vertically integrating this business because uh, campaigns are big money. You know, when you get a mailer in the mail, that means that the candidate who sent you that piece in the mail is getting money from wealthy individuals, and they're connected with these big corporations, so that they are able to generate this flashy mailer. It takes a whole team to make that, and it's a lot of work. And there are people who make a lot of money generating those mailers. And I was in a runoff for Congress. We got like two mailers in the mail every day sometimes two by the same guy he couldn't wait for the next day to send out the next mailer so he just sent out two in the same day it was uh it was crazy and the guy who sent the most mail won uh, he he beat the guy who sent the less mail so it it works right the one who has the most money the one who's got the better corporation is the one who's more likely to win all things being equal
1: I, I find that fascinating because I get a, a, a mailer in the mail and I, it goes directly to the recycle bin. So I don't know who reads those things. But uh, apparently whoever reads those things votes. Yep.
0: it. Uh, we can talk about the voting population in a future episode. But uh, do your research. One easy rule of thumb is if you want to vote for the – if you want to drain the swamp, vote for the candidate who sends you less mail because they're getting less money from lobbyists. That's like the easiest way to know who's getting money from lobbyists, who's sending you the most pieces of mail. So just count and give the money to the guy who's sending you the least.
1: Well, there you have it. Well, Thomas, I want to thank you for a great discussion today.
0: Yeah, this is fun. I'm uh, looking forward to enjoying Hawaii. So uh, we'll be releasing these in a staggered way uh, over the next week. If you realize there's no new news being covered, it's because I am uh, in Hawaii for work, actually. (laughs) I'm going to be working Pretty hard in Hawaii, but I am hoping to enjoy my evenings if I'm not too jet lagged.
1: I find the, uh, the the two words Hawaii and work to be contradictions in terms and not to be used in the same sentence. Yeah, well, I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs> All right, Thomas, I'm Dustin Hammett. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr. We want to know what you have to think. Send us an email. Drop us a line. Tell us what you think about our show. If you have any suggestions about what you want us to talk about.